Okay, we're going to get started. We're going to be reading out of Daniel 3 tonight. And we will be doing the entire chapter of Daniel 3. So I am going to read all of it uh, because that's probably the most important thing I'm going to say this whole time. And then we're going to break down the text. So um, a few seconds to turn there. Daniel 3, and I'll be reading uh, out of the ESV. Um, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, or King Nebuchadnezzar, made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth was 60 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces, to come to see the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the king of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast out into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every other kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And uh, some of the mighty men of his army were to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. 
Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men whom took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the kings and the counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks was not harmed, the smell of fire had not come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to deliver his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So all of Daniel chapter 3, uh, it is my ambition in the 15 or so minutes that I have left after that reading to try to work through this text. Um, so I'm going to kind of get right into it. Uh, and well, I won't be recapping the whole story, um, but we'll be pointing to parts of it. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to read it, to throw it all out in front of you so you at least have it uh, in your mind's eye. Um, the, the main idea we've been working with in, in the study of Daniel thus far is we've been working under the, the heading of the theme that this is a field guide for exiles, how to exist in exile. Um, and we've been looking at it at the lens from Daniel and his, his counterparts. Last week, we uh, took the big, broad brushstroke scope of world history, as is proclaimed by Daniel, um, that the God of Israel is the one who's victorious, that he sets up a kingdom and that no other of the kingdoms that are of this world actually succeed over the kingdom that God will set up. Nebuchadnezzar is rather impressed by this, and he kind of gets now into this point in time where he is uh, almost seemingly have forgotten all of chapter two. You know, when we leave him at the end of chapter two, he's impressed with them, he appoints them, he promotes them, uh, and then some time passes by, we're not told how much time, and we find ourselves in the events of chapter three and verse one. Now. Uh, we're not told where Daniel is in this text. It is likely because Daniel is going to get Daniel chapter 6, where he has his, his encounter with the lion's den and his own stand, as it were, uh, that he gets omitted from this text. But we're not to conclude then that he was part of the group that uh, worshipped with uh, the rest of the folks. Um, in fact, the previous text introduces us to the fact that Daniel uh, is kept in the king's private court, and the rest of them actually go out essentially into Babylon to serve. And so it's likely that thematically, the people who accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't even around Daniel to accuse him, which is why he doesn't get brought forward. So nevertheless, Daniel is, let's say, away for the time being, uh, who's kind of like the main character in the book. And then we get these men drawn forward. And I think one of the things that this text teaches us is that there's always a temptation to nuance things. There's always a temptation to be less clear than we might want to be because it provides quite a bit of convenience when you're engaging with culture and you don't want to be quite as dogmatic over something that could spare you your life. Uh, some of the things we look at fondly in the history of the church is saints making bold stands for their faith. 
we love recounting the tale, for example, of Polycarp or Luther when he nails the 95 Theses to the door. I think we like those men so much because they're safely dead. They're not going to stir up any trouble in our day. And we know generally what side of history they landed on. We know that we kind of align with them. And so we, we champion them as heroes of the faith. But imagine living in the day of, let's say, a Luther, when he's splitting hairs with the Catholics over the doctrine of salvation by grace alone or salvation by grace and works. And keep in mind, Luther decides to drive the clarity of the teaching of justification so, so through the Roman church that he has to separate, essentially form a splinter group off the church, which hasn't really happened since the schism with the East and the West and the Catholic Church at that time. But he so strongly holds to his conviction that this is what he has to do. And now think about that and think, if you know Catholic doctrine today, would you be willing to, if we were all part of the same church, we had the same teachings abounding, and there was a difference of opinion over justification by faith and justification by faith and works, would you be willing to do what Luther did? Or would you be in support of a theologian who was driving a division in the church like Luther did? Now, that's an interesting question, right? We champion Luther as a hero often because he's dead and gone. You know, we, we don't have to deal with him in our present day, driving any kind of division, stirring up any kind of conflict, being the subject of any kind of harsh words. There's always a temptation for us to nuance or explain away things that we should otherwise, I think, be clear on. Now, there's another saint in church history who I think drives this point home, who's Athanasius, uh, and we'll get to him uh, towards the end. I want to read a few things about him. But uh, Athanasius is a saint who is, uh, he's the guy who goes up against Arius and basically defends that Jesus is in fact God, not a creation of God, he is in fact God himself. But the thing that's interesting about Athanasius, if you know his life, it's not that, he, he's actually not victorious in his own lifetime. He has the Council of Nicaea, the church is, let's say, championing that doctrine. And then he faces essentially 50 years of conflict, exiles, and oppression from the church. And all the Arians are asking for is not for their doctrine to be championed, but simply for their doctrine to be accepted alongside the general teaching of the church. And Athanasius is saying he's not going to compromise. And the rest of the church is saying, well, you know, why don't we just get along with them? Because they're our brothers in Christ. You know, they seem to be good theologians. Uh, why are you splitting hairs over this? We should be more careful, more nuanced about this kind of thing. And I think there's always a temptation when there's something big at stake for us to try to be nuanced about things. Now, you might think about things in our day that are like that. Uh, things such as abortion, uh, transgenderism, uh, same-sex marriage, things that the culture, and when the church engages with the culture, the, the church says things like, well, you know, let's nuance that. Let's, let's be careful. And the church doesn't want to necessarily always make clear distinctions where they sometimes ought to. I think one of the things we learn from this text is while the temptation to nuance exists and we can understand that it's at play, I think Daniel, uh, Daniel's company here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think they give us a great uh, guideline on how we should not compromise or not nuance, especially when something as big is at stake. In this case, the thing at stake is the worship of God, the first commandment, and violating it. And they decide, even though it's a false god, even though everyone else is going along with it, even though they're in high government authority positions, they're still not going to compromise their conviction in order to, let's say, have some downstream benefit for their people. And we can, let's say, understand why that might have been a temptation for them. They don't say things like, hey, well, in my personal capacity, I have this conviction about not worshiping false gods, but in my professional capacity, acting as an official of Babylon, I'm going to have to go along with the order. They don't say things like, well, you know, we could be more useful to the Jewish people if we maintain these positions. We compromise here for this moment, and we maintain these positions, let's say, throughout the history of the, of 
Babylon, we could be really useful to our people if we did that. They don't say that. They're willing to risk their jobs, their life, their careers, and possibly the future of the Jewish people in Babylon because they are representatives of the Jewish people. They're willing to risk all of that for the sake of not violating the first commandment. And you think about that clarity and all of the surrounding temptations that they might have had to caveat or to nuance or try to create a category where they could have participated in this false worship but not themselves felt like they had done anything wrong. And think about in our day, all the things that Christians try to create nuance around where sometimes clarity is the best way forward. So I want to explore some of those things. From the text, let's take a look at uh, at least two of the driving forces why it might be tempting to try to nuance something. Um, Two of the driving forces that, that make it tempting, the first is the monolithic uniformity from all the powerful people in the land to agree with this narrative. So you'll see this in verse two and verse three. It's almost like the same verse repeated twice, and you might have felt that way when I was reading it. Verse 2 and verse 3. So King Nebuchadnezzar sends the order, and notice the list of people. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. The police force, the fire chiefs, all the Republicans, all the Democrats, everyone comes out in support of Nebuchadnezzar's bill, Nebuchadnezzar's law, Nebuchadnezzar's decree. Everyone does it, except for three Jewish individuals who are also in the government. Imagine that kind of pressure. You're there with everyone else. Everyone else is bought into this thing. The text makes it clear, not once but twice. He didn't want us to miss it. So in, the, in verse 3, then what do they do after they hear the decree? The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that the king had set up. They're all there. They're all participating, except for, as we're told later in the text, these three Jewish uh, men who stand out according to the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans know that they're standing out because they're not participating, and so the Chaldeans call them on it. So we notice the pressure of uniformity. This reminds us something in the text, which is that conformity by a large body of people, a popular vote, does not determine truth. Just because a bunch of, you get a bunch of people together to agree to something that you're saying does not make it true. Just because you get a bunch of people or even officials together who can decree in an official capacity that this is so, does not make it so. The way John Knox would famously say it, and you might have heard this quote before, is he says, God plus one makes a majority. That's what John Knox would say when debating with some of the theologians in his day. Conformity by a mass group of people does not dictate truth. Popular vote does not dictate truth. What dictates truth? God's word. God's word is the dictum of truth for the Christian. And notice in verse uh, 7 of this text, not only is it all these people participating, but verse 7, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image. Now think about what King Nebuchadnezzar is creating here. And you might not know this language. Revelation draws heavily from the language in the book of Daniel. But in Revelation, who's the one who gets worship from all people, nations, languages, tribes, tongues, and nations? Who's that person? And Nebuchadnezzar is setting himself up, and the text is making it clear, he's setting himself up in a position of worship that the Jew would know this only belongs to God. Now, the text is not telling us that these various government officials believe that this is a true image. In fact, when they accuse the three Jewish uh, men of not participating in the worship, notice what they say in verse 12. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They don't think this is a real God. 
they don't think anything of it. They just know that the Jewish people aren't conforming in worship like everyone else is. So don't take this and believe that all the nation of Babylon was led astray. They all bought into the lie. They all thought this was a real God. They don't think that. They just think it's not worth their jobs or their heads or their careers to not go with Nebuchadnezzar on this. That's a really interesting thing. So the uniformity pressure, that's a temptation for the Jewish people to maybe say, let's nuance this a bit. Let's maybe create a caveat where we can bow down but not really worship the image in our hearts, you know, something like that. But we don't see them doing that. The other source of temptation that we see in the text is the threat of direct harm. You see this in verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar has previously said he'll throw them into a furnace, but in verse 15, they've been dragged in front of him. He accuses them directly, and then he says, uh, this is the end of verse 15, it's the last sentence, he says, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then he makes this kind of cavalier statement, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's quite a statement from Nebuchadnezzar who has not so long ago heard from a vision in Daniel about a God who destroys all empires. But Nebuchadnezzar's making of a golden image is interesting because it's drawing a lot on the imagery of chapter three where the image is gold and a mixed multitude of metals, essentially with a rock destroying the image. It's not hard to understand that Nebuchadnezzar might've been building an image like that, but making it all gold, as if to say, in defiance of the testimony of Daniel and you know, me losing my position of authority, actually I'm setting up a golden statue which will not be destroyed, and who's the God that's gonna stop me? Kind of reminds you maybe of Goliath in the David and Goliath story where he says, who is the God of the Israelites? Who is the one who will stop me? And you know that this draws from a biblical audience's perspective, almost like a burning passion towards God intervening, stepping in, winning the day, right? It kind of sets us up for that kind of expectation. But you think about what it's going to cost these men if, they, if this doesn't work out, right? They could lose their jobs. They could lose their lives. That's the direct threat on the ground. They could lose their influence. They could lose any benefit that they previously had ascended to over their long, hard careers of training and, and effort and energy and all the time spent thus far in their lives. They could lose it, all for not violating a commandment of God. Now, if you think about this, for us in, in the Western church, it's unlikely, at least within our lifetime, it's unlikely that you're going to be dragged before a governing board and they're going to say, bow down to an image or you'll be thrown into a burning flame. Right? The West is a little bit more sophisticated than that. But think about if you took a, a Christian stand in your workplace where maybe the truth of God is not embraced widely, that might cost you a job. That could cost you acceptance into a school or the finishing out of an education. That could cost you a friendship. That could cost you influence. That could get you uh, passed up for a promotion. That can do all kinds of things that you could justify and say, well, if I, if I ignore it now and I ascend higher in the ranks, maybe I can have an influence on this organization. Maybe I can have an influence in this sphere. You might want to nuance it. But there are some things the text makes clear are not worth that kind of compromise. Think about all the things that it might cost us to stand for what we know to be true in God's word. But in the face of these two, let's say, temptations, and there's many more, I just highlighted two of them. In the face of these temptations to compromise or to create nuance where there might not be a need to, we see, uh, let's say, two things that motivate the, uh, these men to not compromise. The two things I think that motivate them not to compromise is first, plain truth, and secondly, the character of their God. So for plain truth, I just want to highlight a couple of verses. Um, you might have heard when I was reading the text, uh, the, rep the repetition of one phrase in particular, that it has been set up. You might have heard that a bunch of times. 
I want to go look at all those verses again. So first, verse 1. Second half of verse 1, it's uh, the second sentence. He's talking about the image. It says, he set it up. Talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 2. The image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 3. And they gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 5. And they worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At the very end of verse 6, usually right at the end of that paragraph break, then all the na people, nations, languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The accusation of the people in verse 12, O king, pay no they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. From Nebuchadnezzar himself, he's saying this in verse 14, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Verse 15, not, not very much later, he says, Now if you are ready, when you hear that sound, I'm going to skip down, to fall down and worship the image that I have made. And then lastly, the reply of the three when they refuse to do so, verse 18, We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, if you're a Jewish person, and let's say they, they die for this testimony. Let's say they get thrown into the fire furnace, they die, and Nebuchadnezzar moves on with his life. There's no miraculous deliverance. There's a certain note of comfort in the people of God that this gigantic thing was just a farce. There's nothing real here. It's not like they've abandoned truth and they've embraced the lie. They know what's true. The author's telling us what's true. He's telling us this, is, this whole thing is a setup. This is a fake image, a false god. It's, it's a lie. It's a joke. So it doesn't matter how many people go along with the lie. Now, you might be saying, well, that's, you know, so many people went along with it. It could have been true. Imagine you're sitting, you know, you're, 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 you're an adult, you know, post, let's say, sixth grade, you know, you're older. And you're sitting with a bunch of young children, and they're trying to convince you that Santa Claus is real. No matter how many of those kids tell you that Santa Claus is real, no matter how passionately they say it, if you know that that's not true, you're not going to buy it. You're not going to buy into it. Now, let's say they, they don't want to talk to you because you won't embrace their idea that Santa Claus is real. Well, even if that's the case, there's some amount of comfort in knowing that actually you're the one who's attached to reality and they're living in a fantasy world, right? There's some comfort in that. Now, that's a silly situation, but I think it does highlight the hilarity of the situation. The author is telling us this whole thing is a joke. Nebuchadnezzar made it. Now he's making people worship it. This is a, this is a joke. This is a lie. This is a, a gigantic farce. It comforts the people of God to know that the world has it wrong. Now think about all the things in our day that the world has wrong. The people of God know that the world has wrong. The world lies all the time, for example, about the character of God. It says God is love, and if you believe in a God that's wrathful or hateful or has any kind of judgment against sin, you're attached to a fantasy God. No matter how many times they say that, no matter how many times they take Christians and they drag them through the mud on the media or whatever else, Christians know and can take comfort in the fact that that's actually a belief in God that's detached from reality and who he really is. There's a comfort in that. It doesn't matter how many people hate you for it, there's a certain comfort in knowing that you are actually the one rooted in reality. Same thing about gender. Our culture is debating whether men and women are different, whether men can become women, things like that. As a Christian, it doesn't matter how many people say differently. It doesn't matter how many people fire you for it or hate you for it or revile you for it. You know, you know what's true. And even if they all cancel you for it, there's a certain comfort in knowing that you're the one who's rooted in reality. Same thing about marriage and, and all the rest, right? We know, regardless of our views getting dragged through the mud in the popular culture, there's a certain comfort in knowing that we believe true things that are verifiable from God himself. There's a certain comfort in that. It doesn't guarantee we get safe passing, but there's a comfort in it. 
So that's one motivating factor. The other motivating factor, I think, in the text that we see is the character of God. God is a promise-keeping God. This is what drives their faith. Notice they don't demand that God delivers them. They say in verse 17, if it be so, meaning if he's going to throw them in the fire if they don't worship, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, it's unlikely that the text is trying to tell us that God is capable of saving them when it says, uh, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to save us. Is it probably not talking about his capability of saving them. They're probably drawing on a testimony of his willingness to save them. Our God is willing to save us, but even if he doesn't save us, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods. They're drawing on God's character, his, his faithfulness. He's a faithful God who loves his people, who set his heart and affections on his people. And he's told them before this exile, by the way, I'm still in charge. You don't have to worry. Babylon has not won, right? That's the frame in chapter one, verse one of the book of Daniel. And so they're holding on to this truth. They're holding on to this promise. It's worked out for them so far. And now when it's come to the highest cost, they already know God's delivered them here, here, here. He's been faithful to them the whole time. They're drawing on his character. It's a motivating factor for faith. So that's a, this is a true faith. But think about how, how beautiful their testimony of faith is. They don't demand that God does deliver them or else he's a false god. They actually say, if he does deliver us, glory to God, he's going to get the, the, the praise. But think about if they die and they don't get rescued. Does God still get glory from that? Absolutely. Because they haven't compromised and they would rather be burned by Nebuchadnezzar in a furnace than bow down to some false image. That says something about what they believe. That says something about the truth of their beliefs, right? Now this uh, salvation here, and I'm going a little bit over, but this salvation is something that we can't expect, let's say, normatively, but it is an extraordinary work of God to save them. And I just want to point out to you that we shouldn't expect this kind of miraculous delivery, but God is certainly capable of doing it. And I want to turn to a New Testament text that affirms this, Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews is clear that whether saved or not, it bears witness to the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm going to be at the tail end of that chapter in verse 32. So where the author, he's been recounting a detailed history, and he does that thing where he says, and I'm out of time, but what more shall I say of? And he goes on, he says, For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Verse 33 tells us, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, that's a miraculous delivery, quenched the power of fire, no doubt having this in mind, escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, they became mighty in war, they put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. That's through the beginning of verse 35. All those miraculous deliveries by God. But the text then pivots and talks about another kind of faith that's displayed. And it says this, right after the, the women received back their dead by resurrection, the very next sentence, some were tortured, refusing to accept a release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, and even the chains of imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. That's the opposite of being delivered from the sword. They went about in skin of sheep and goats. They were poverty-stricken, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And what did the text conclude? That the second half of faith of the saints weren't really quite faithful. God didn't intervene for them. That's a bad testimony for God. No. It concludes that the world is not worthy of those saints. And God was glorified the whole time. Whether he delivered them in, in miraculous victory, their faith is on display, or whether they die in their testimony of faith, their faith is on display. Either way, God gets glory. The point is that's the kind of resolve that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have in this text. So in, let's say, closing this out, I said I wanted to maybe draw 
on uh, one of the examples that we have from church history, and I won't be able to read those texts for you, but what happens in the Arian controversy in the first century, and I said our heroes of the faith are, t are dead, and so we, we, we boast in them, but the Arians are looking for acceptance within the church, and what, uh, they're writing letters to the effect of, you know, there's this opinion, there's that opinion, but you know, who's to say? This is just different theological distinctions. Athanasius, who's the, the saint that we would, we would be emboldened by, encouraged by, we would say this is an example of true faith. He writes, and he starts off his letter against the Arians by saying, this heresy which is being written about, namely that of Arius, and then he goes on to, he, he he's clear. There's no nuance. There's no, well, Arius has some points. Or, he totally draws a distinction between him and the, what the church believes and the Arians. And this gets him in a ton of trouble. He gets cast out. He gets exiled. He gets, for 50 years, kind of in and out of being persecuted and attacked and all this kind of stuff. And we look back on him and we say that was a hero of the faith who was willing to clearly stand boldly. And I think if, if you were to take that today and you were to say Arius is alive today and Athanasius is alive today and they're debating this thing, would, be, would the temptation that you feel or that we feel be to nuance those categories, have maybe a careful debate, but not necessarily be willing to break fellowship? Or would we say, no, a clear, bold stand is actually what's necessary to drive home the truth of God's word? My point is simply this. When we look at the testimony here in Daniel 3, and we look at the testimony of the church historians like Luther and Arius and, and all these other heroes throughout the faith, what we see is that the faithful, bold stand, the clear stand, gives a, a more lasting testimony onto the world than the stand that seeks for careful nuance and maintaining influence. And that's kind of what I want to leave you with, is this idea that the, the Christians are always trying to buy into in the world is that if we, if we can be close by the world, close enough to influence it, close enough to be accepted by it, that's where we have the most impact. That's where we have the most influence on the world. But Daniel 3, uh, church history would tell us, the way Christians have the most effect on the world is not by being close to the world, but actually by being in the world, but totally distinct from the world. Being willing to be canceled, willing to be killed, willing to be thrown away by the world. That's actually where Christians have a powerful testimony. That sets Daniel and them up for the glory of God, the delivery that God provides here in the text. That sets up all of the magnificent happenings in the text. The point is not that you're going to experience a miraculous delivery if you stand for truth. You might get fired. That's actually very likely. You might not get a job promotion. There's all kinds of things that could happen to you. My point is, don't be discouraged by that prospect. Take heart from the faith of Daniel and, and take encouragement of how, this is how you live as an exile in the land. This is how you live in a, in a country that's hostile towards God. This is how you live faithfully towards the Lord. There are some things that we don't nuance, we don't compromise on. We stand boldly for the faith and whatever consequences come, they come. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this time. I thank you for your word to us and uh, particularly for this encouraging testimony of faith from these men. Lord, do you sear this into our hearts and minds and help us to apply this throughout our lives? Help us to consider all the things in which we uh, might be prone to compromise in. Help us to consider all of the consequences from that and uh, weigh that against your ability to save and deliver your people and to be made great through the testimony of your faithful believers. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. We pray that you would help it to uh, seep into our hearts and minds. And I pray that you would uh, bless our time, the remaining time that we have as we discuss and we try to drive this text home uh, deeper into our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen.